If you guys don't know Sean, the first three years that Element was here, Sean actually did all the music for us and stuff. And then he, uh, he and his wife went down to school. And so I'm always trying to, you know, finagle him when he can come back and do stuff because I love Sean Jones. He's cool. Plus, he's, like, gigantically tall, which is awesome. And he used to have this red fro. <laughs> I am not excited to cut it off, but, you know, I think his wife probably is. So, yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, so uh, tape day is today. And I'm not trying to garner your sympathy here. Uh, but I literally have been sick this week. And so, like, even this morning, I feel I'm, like, right on the edge of throwing up. So uh, if if we're out there and, you know, projectile comes at you, dodge it. But I will be aiming for you. <laughs> After last service, there's a lady at Element who has a bunch of chickens, and she brought my wife some eggs, and she handed them to me. And I go, sweet, I'm going to throw these at people when they come at me with tape. And she's all, give them to your wife. And I go, nope. And so she went and told my wife. My wife came over and got them from me. Cause I'm just, hey, you know, I'm telling you people, tape day, I'm not happy. Don't hold me accountable for anything that comes out of my mouth when you come at me with your tape. Yes, there's a reason why it's not called dart day. I used to have two eyes. Now I have 20. <sighs> Don't take this the wrong way. You guys, are, you guys are hot this morning. It's hot in here. I know, but I wore this old white T-shirt, and I got pit stains. So. It's staying on for the video. These are all the things you ever watch, like these online. You'll never see this stuff. This is like the 815 service. I'm just jabbing away, huh? Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, uh, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, and in those sermon notes, it's a little extra stuff that we talk about other than just what we say this morning. But there's also questions on the back, and those questions are there. So you can hopefully meet with somebody else who is here, maybe somebody who listened online, a group of friends, a gospel community, your family, and talk about some of those things and go a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. The app is called Version. Click on Live and Version, and you'll see us by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get all the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today's message. So why don't you stand with me to read God's Word. This is Mark 9.47. This is a parallel passage to what we're looking at today. And Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Ouch, right? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would help us to understand what it means uh, to see ourselves as we truly are. Uh, and the place that you have stepped into to redeem us, and that we'd be a people who walk in the humbleness of the grace that we have received. And we'd be able to extend that to other people because we see ourselves for what we are, but also what we are in you. So teach us to live lives of grace and goodness that are reflected because of your great redemption first given to us. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Sermon on the Mount, week 18. Today we're going to be like a kid learn how to drive a stick shift or a parallel park for the first time we're going to like go two steps forward and one step back uh last week we dealt with matthew 5 21 to 26 uh this is where jesus gets to the place and he talks about anger and forgiveness where sometimes we don't have a whole lot of forgiveness because we see ourselves as better than everybody else we see ourselves uh, other people's having to bow down to us and that what we do is always right and they are always wrong and how dare they offend us because we are so much better than somebody else and what jesus does he helps us to understand 
understand that when we are like that, we become murderers. And we need to become humble people because Jesus is redefining uh, interaction in terms of our relationships. So we're going to deal with those verses a little bit today, but also move in context to what comes after that because I believe they both actually go together, how these things blend together. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount starts with this thing called the Beatitudes. Uh, These are blessings that Jesus speaks to these people who were all lost. Uh, The Beatitudes, they are lyrical, they're rhythmic, they have a cadence to them, but they're all about context. The Beatitudes all refer back to all these Old Testament references. Like if I got up today and I, and I started giving you a whole bunch of like hymn lyrics from, from the older church, I could go and look and, and point to all the places in the, in the scriptures that all those words came from throughout the scriptures. Uh, I actually have a book in my office called the One Year Book of Hymns. It's a one-year devotional through all these older hymns and all the scriptures that inspired them. Well, this is kind of what the Beatitudes were like. They're all these phrases that Jesus took out of Old Testament scriptures and brought them together to make more sense and how God is blessing and has blessed his people. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That goes all the way back to Psalm 40, Psalm 69, Isaiah 6, and verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's Ezra 10, Psalm 51, Daniel 9, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 61, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's Deuteronomy 4, uh, Deuteronomy 16, Psalm 37, uh, Isaiah 66, and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's Psalm 42, Psalm 63, and this goes all through every single one of the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Jesus strings and pulls all of these words together in Scripture to show how mankind was supposed to live, and that is in the kingdom of God. And every time Jesus does this, and he does it a lot throughout the scriptures, what he was doing for those in the crowd who actually knew the scriptures was he was trying to reinforce that God has promised to rescue his children, and he will rescue his children. God promised to send a Messiah, and he had sent a Messiah. God promised to teach people how to live, how to read and know the scriptures, and he was doing that. And so he pulls all these scriptures together to make one major point, and that point is that God is faithful, and that God has always been faithful. He cares for us. He blesses us. Even when times are hard, we're supposed to seek him because he blesses us there as well. But what is sad is a lot of times when life is most painful is when we run from him and when we don't turn our lives over to him when we need him the most. So there's this paradoxical quality of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus starts and he walks through this blessing, talking all about the blessings, and then he starts to move into harder and harder things. He says, look, this is where we're going to start. You're a blessed people. You must understand that, that you are poor in spirit. Well, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And he moves on from there and he gets to this place about salt and light. This is how we're supposed to live in the world. The emphasis becomes kind of ownership. Does the world own you? Or do you see yourself as someone in the world supposed to take stewardship and responsibility and be salt and light in the world that's around you? He moves from that into the fulfillment of the law, what true worship is supposed to be like. And he calls us to his righteousness. We're supposed to be a presence in the world that is honorable and good, to live truly righteous lives. Not self-righteous lives, but God's righteousness in us. And this is all lyrical and poetical, and it's moving around. And then it gets to what he talks about last week, what we're talking about today. It's kind of like you've ever seen the movie Jaws. It's actually interesting. Last service, there was a car that had a horn, and they honked like, must have been like two lights down. He goes, meee. It was like, I'm like, it's just like that. It's like Jaws. You got that, the shark comes like, dun, 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 dun. Anybody not seen Jaws? Dun, dun. Right? Dun, 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 dun. Then the shark, and you're dead, right? That, that's, it's it's kind of like this is what the Beatitudes are like. It's like, whoop, 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 
whoop, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Jesus hits the ideas of murder and lust, and it totally changes tone. And Jesus is starting to hold up a mirror to our lives so we see what we truly are deep down in our hearts. And so this is what he does. So we're going to read Matthew 5, 21 to 30, all the way through those to put these in context. And what Jesus does, he's inviting us to name our own brokenness, to see our own brokenness and then grow through it. So Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and everyone murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. And we looked at that last week in terms of relationships, that we are all those people who have been killers in our lives. And then verse 27, Jesus goes on and he ties this together. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, some people have read this, and they said, see, Jesus just connects connects hell with sex. Therefore, look, sex is horrible. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is actually doing is he's bearing witness to the importance of sex and the dignity of sex in these verses. And I'm not going to go into the whole subject of hell here. I don't really have time, but you need to understand something about Jesus. In the scriptures, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the scriptures. Now, essentially, I would say that hell is the final state of the soul for people who have rejected the rightful healing hands of Jesus. But hell just is not some afterlife. Hell can actually start now, today. It's like when a car is totaled, a car doesn't cease to exist. It means the car can no longer be used for its original function. It can't function as a car. It's alienated from its original purpose and design, but the car is still there. Timothy Kelder writes this. In hell, the human soul is totaled. It doesn't mean it ceases to exist. It is completely annihilated from its original design. The human soul cannot realize its purpose. It cannot love. It cannot serve anybody because it's in the absolute misery of total self-centeredness. It cannot give joy, and it cannot receive joy. It's total. So Jesus, in relating lust to hell, is saying sexuality and the misuse of that is one of the main ways for our souls to get into that condition. But he is also saying that sexuality is one of the central things that make us human. And so what Jesus does, he talks about sex being for the total commitment of marriage. Now, you have to understand something about the scriptures. They are unbelievably careful in their ethic. It is balanced. They are perfect. And what I mean by that is you read through the scriptures and it says, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. But yet there are plenty of places in the Bible that tells you if you have to defend yourself from someone who's trying to hurt you or hurt your family and you, in that struggle you kill that person, you are not guilty. The Bible makes a qualification. It is very balanced. Uh, last week we talked about reconciliation. It says whether you have something against somebody else or you know somebody has something against you, your job as a follower of Jesus who lives in the kingdom of God is to go and reconcile as best as you can, as best as you can. But the Bible also qualifies that. In Romans twelve eighteen, it says as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In Proverbs 25, 4, or 26, 4, it says do not answer a fool according to his folly. That means it may be that you are trying to reconcile with somebody. You're doing everything you possibly can, but they are using that reconciliation to continue to try and hurt you. 
You are not to be a masochist or a sadist if you call yourself a Christian. At a certain point, you may actually need to withdraw. The Bible says in Exodus 20.16 that we're not supposed to lie. And yet you look at this lady in the Old Testament. Her name is Rahab. She's a prostitute. The Hebrew spies are going in, and they're checking out the promised land. And these people in the city say, oh, are you hiding those spies? Where are they? We want to we kill those spies. And Rahab goes, I don't know where they are. I don't know what you're talking about. And she hides them. Yet the, She lies to hide them, and the scripture actually commends her for it. Now, that is because the Bible admits there's qualifications. There are extreme situations in which a person can be so wicked that they forfeit the right to the truth. This does not qualify as when your spouse walks up and they say, hey, do these jeans make my butt look big? Okay? And you're like, uh, they're nice jeans. You know, you are a tough crowd. You are a tough crowd. Actually, uh, after first service, I had a guy come up, and he goes, he goes, if you want, I will find all the duct tape, I'll put it in my car, and I'll drive off. But I know I'm not supposed to steal. And I said, the Bible has qualifications. <laughs> if you want to go steal all the duct tape, go in grace, my son. That's just how it, yeah, whatever. The Bible is unbelievably nuanced and balanced. But it's really interesting. When you come to this idea of thou shalt not commit adultery, there are zero qualifications. There are, there are none in that. It doesn't say you shall not commit adultery, but if you really, really love the other person, well, then it's okay. It doesn't say uh, you should not commit adultery, but if you're not getting what you want at home, then it's okay. It doesn't say you should not commit adultery, but if they're really hot, well, maybe. You know, it doesn't say that at all. There are no qualifications for something. Some things are just wrong. But my favorite song says it can't be wrong when it feels so right. Well, your favorite song is wrong, okay? It's wrong. I mean, you know, Hitler essentially said that as he pushed six million Jews into these ovens. It just feels right. This is what we're supposed to do. This is why we can't base morality on our feelings. Otherwise, we have no right to call what the Nazis did wrong. The Bible says that shall not commit adultery. The word adultery literally means sex outside of a covenant. Now, the strictest form of that means if you're married, have sex with someone outside your marriage covenant. If you do something outside your spouse, that is adultery. But also inherent in that idea of sex outside of covenant is that it's also wrong to have sex without a covenant. That you're supposed to only have sex within the marriage covenant, any sex without a covenant. That's actually not a minority opinion. You know, all three branches of Christianity, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Churches, all Judaism, even all of Islam, all say the exact same thing. Now, I think there are some reason, some wrong reasons why adultery is wrong. You know, one of my, one of my favorite uh, theologians is a guy named Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas said, adultery is a sin because adulterers don't want to have babies. So if you want to have a baby, it's okay. I mean, really? Immanuel Kant, who's a, a German philosopher, said, uh, the reason you shouldn't commit adultery is because if you commit adultery, you've lost self-control. You've been brought down from your human rational level and into an animal level. Now, both men are wrong, but they share this common assumption, and that assumption is that sex is somehow dirty. Oh, it's only for making babies? Oh, you know, really? Well, that means it's a necessary evil for procreation. Immanuel Kant thinks that human passion makes you more of an animal. Neither of those are biblical. The Bible teaches you that, that sex is a beautiful thing. It's never a dirty thing. Our bodies are not dirty things. It teaches you sex is a gift. Like when you get married, people are going to give you all kinds of gifts. You're going to get toasters and crock pots, which will leave an element. You'll get dishes and plates, which will leave an element. They're in the back. If you left one here, they're in the back. Okay? You know, you, and, and all these things are eventually going to break. But God gives you this gift called sex that doesn't. And it lasts throughout your lifetime. And, and when you're in a good marriage, it just gets better and better and better. You know, and if it does go bad, well, there's a little blue pill for that, and it makes it all better again. 
When sex is operating correctly in a marriage, it is glorious. It is good. It is wonderful. It is like a covenant renewal ceremony. Every time you have sex in a good marriage, what happens is you recreate your ability to trust somebody else again. You're making yourself vulnerable again. You put yourself completely in their arms. There is nothing between you and that other person. You are there. You are vulnerable. You're recreating your covenant commitment. But every time you have sex outside of marriage without a covenant, you begin to destroy that commitment. You're destroying the thing that God gave you that is deeper than any other thing to enable you to trust another person with. See, that's why Jesus says eventually that leads you to the hardness of hell. I mean, why is adultery wrong? Because sex is a unitive act. It was meant to bring people together. It was for covenant only. It's a glorious thing, and it creates this ability to trust because you are to be one flesh. Now, this is what all the teachers of the law would have said at that time. This is what they would have heard when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. But see, Jesus does never stop just there. Jesus always goes deeper. He takes it somewhere else. And so Jesus starts to talk about lust. And lust is what we do with our passion. Now, literally in Greek, it comes out better like in the old King James, but it says, whoever looketh on a woman to lust. That's choosing a way to look at somebody. I mean, it could go the other way around. Anybody who looks on a man in order to lust. Like, this is why I don't flex too much in front of you. (laughs) Don't want to make you lust with with my guns. It's like, where are the guns? You leave them at home? My guns will be taped to the wall later. (laughs) And they won't be happy about it. But anyway. No? Okay, whatever. Uh, it's this, it's this looking in order to lust. And that's an important connection because there's two parts to it. There's the looking, and then there's the in order to lust. There's nothing inherently wrong with sexual passion, sexual desire. It's central to what makes us human beings. And because of that, you have the, the ability to admire somebody. You think, oh, hey, they're pretty. Oh, hey, they're beautiful. I know sometimes when your spouse says, hey, that person on TV, do you think they're pretty? And you're like, there is no correct answer to this question whatsoever. What do I do with this, right? You know, but it's... It gives us the ability to realize, oh, hey, someone is pretty and and that kind of thing. That's where that look comes from. Jesus said there's nothing wrong with that look. He says it's the look that's in order to. So you're not just looking. You're like looking somewhere like, hey, my eyes are up here, you know, or, hey, they walk away. You're like looking at their butt. Is walking away going, hey, look at that. That's the in order to. And the word lust, you got to understand, it's not just a sexual thing in the Bible. It's so much more. It's so much deeper. Lust is essentially self-maximizing. It's all about ourself. And you can get lust mixed up with all kinds of different things. Like, say, uh, you want to do really well in your job, which is a good thing. You should all want to do well in your job. But if lust get, gets hooked up in your job, you will spend all your time at your job. You will not spend any time with God in his word. You won't spend time with your family or your kids. Everything will get neglected because lust has overtaken your job. That's what lust does. It starts to overtake everything. When lust, when it gets hooked hooked up with sex, it takes over your thought life, your fantasy life, and everything starts to go sideways because it eats you up. But it's not just a sexual thing. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about the fools and the wise. The fool says all these things. I define my life in terms of my own present needs. I define if I wanted to marry somebody on how it's going to make me feel and if it's going to enrich my life. I make all my decisions based on what fulfills me now. If a commitment doesn't fulfill me now, I will go do something else. I've got to get rid of it because it's not fulfilling me. That is self-maximizing. And that is the difference between love and lust. Lust is all about yourself. Love, Love is giving yourself to the people. Love is being a servant. Lust is what fools do. And you've got to also understand the terms of what Jesus is saying here. He's not just saying you haven't committed adultery if you haven't done the actual act. You haven't been given the scarlet letter if you haven't done the act. 
It's that when you begin to lust for anything, it we deserve the name adulterer. Like James 4.4 says, you adulterous generation. Because these are people who are supposed to love and worship Jesus, but they are giving themselves to every other thing in the world. And what James did is he equates that to adultery, just like Jesus did. I mean, going back to last week about anger, when we think it's us versus somebody else, when we think we're better than somebody else, where our heart begins to want the worst for somebody else because they don't see the world the way that we do, or that they're not agreeing with us, that they're an idiot, or or something like that. The accurate name for us would be murderer, would be killer. And so Jesus says the nature of all of us when we sin is that we have this idea that it comes down to that we are all killers and we are all whores. And they're very, very strong. You like those words? You're a killer and a whore. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. That feels so good and wonderful. It doesn't feel good, right? Because Jesus wants to hold the mirror. He wants us to see those things. We must see where our anger and our lusts all come from. They come from our own pride. I mean, those words, killers and whores, they are not words that appeal to us, really, in any sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of weddings recently for people who uh, met each other online. Nothing wrong with that. Great. More power to you. They love Jesus. You love Jesus. Wonderful. Uh, but, but it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of people when they go on these online sites and stuff, nobody really says the truth about themselves. You know, you got the, you got the Facebook photo. Where's my best angle? I'll take 20 pictures. Oh, that one looks good. Okay, here's me. You know, it's, no? Okay, whatever. Bunch of liars. Um, <laughs> and so what I did is, is I Googled this. Honest, I did honest dating profiles. So I'm going to read you four that I found, okay? Uh, here's, here's the first picture, All right? And this is what they wrote. I like to make my own Cheetos. I'm like, I'd believe it. I'd believe it. Here's another, number two. This guy right here on the bottom, you can't read it. It says, you should message me for not turned off by what you saw here. <laughs> right? Uh, here's this guy, number three. This guy says, I don't own a gun. I would like to own a gun someday, but I'm more into swords. <laughs> Who could have told, really? This, the, the next one's my favorite, but nobody seems to think it's funny. I think it's hilarious, okay? So this guy, he writes, I know, right? Just the picture. He writes, I was in beauty pageants and won as a boy, okay? My dad forced me into it. My dad smokes hella weed. And now they're all funny. Now, just imagine if we did an online profile of ourselves and we actually said what is true. You know what Jesus would say our online profile would have to say? We're killers and whores. That's what it would have to say because that's what is in our hearts. Now, a lot of people want to go to church and be told how great they are and how much Jesus loves them and all that. But the mirror that Jesus holds up for you and I to see, after starting with blessings, after going into salt and light and true worship, he holds up this mirror to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm calling you to be. This is what I have done for you. You must understand what your hearts are like so you can understand how to live humbleness, being poor in spirit, walking into the kingdom that I've called you to. We must understand when we live in our own righteousness what it looks like. It looks like killers and whores. Now, if Jesus showed up as a guest preacher to a church and he said, you're all killers and whores, and he did Matthew 5, 21 to 30, we'd be like, please don't invite that guy back. We don't like that guy very much. See, Matthew 5, 21 to, to 30, it is not a light passage. It's no longer the nice lyrical, womp, womp, womp. It all of a sudden is no longer paradox. It is just in your face, and it lays out with great clarity why none of us lives out the Beatitudes very well, why none of us live in the kingdom of God. Jesus addresses the condition of our hearts. In this passage, is the core call is that we need to examine what is true about our very own hearts. 
I mean, Jesus is saying, you can be very, very faithful and never actually commit the act of adultery. You can be very faithful and never actually murder somebody. But you'll walk around and feel so righteous. The context of the passage is what is true about our own hearts. Again, lust is not just referring to sexual lust. It's any desire that has come and gotten a hold upon you to where it demands your life has turned into lust, where everything in your life starts to get reprioritized by this thing. I'll give you some examples. I know a family who had some uh, high schoolers that I used to work with, and they had a bat, two bathrooms in the house, one for the, the kids and one for the parents. And they started working on the bathroom in, in the kids' area. And it, 10 years later, the bathroom was still being worked on because the parents got involved in World of Warcraft. And they spent all of their time playing WoW. That's all that they did, never finished the bathroom. World of Warcraft became lust. World of Warcraft can be lust? Yeah. It can. Uh, someone else came to us a while ago and asked us for some money to help feed their kids because uh, they couldn't feed their kids. As we start to check into this, we find out that the person who asked us for money just bought a brand new car. They have their hair done every single week and their nails done every single week. That's lust because it's all about self-maximizing. It's all about themselves and not taking care of the priorities that God has placed in their life. Someone uh, we know got kicked out of their apartment. Uh, and they're asking us for money. As we check into it, they got kicked out of the apartment because all the money they get, they spend on booze, and they drink it all the time. And so they want to, us to pay their rent so they can spend their money on booze. It's lust. Now we think, oh, that's just horrible. Look at all those horrible people. Let's just take it down to something really simple. God calls you and I to be givers. We are to be a generous people. What in your life do you hold more important than God's call to be generous and give? That's lust, whatever it is. Well, I can't really give. I got. I got to pay my cable bill. That's so important. I got to watch. You know, Downtown Abbey when it's on, or whatever. I don't know. You know, I don't watch down. My wife does. I don't. But anyway, you know, whatever that is that takes over God's call to be generous in our lives, that is lust. Lust. Anytime it takes over what God calls us to be, becomes an idol and our God and makes us adulterers. Same thing with anger from last week. And when that overtakes your willingness to reconcile with somebody, when it creates summary judgments, uh, it turns everything into contempts and curses. It has just become murder. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus calls us to realize we are broken without him. And we need to understand that we are all poor in spirit. We are not better than anybody else. Now, I don't have kids, but I have friends who do. And years ago, I went to an event that most parents experience who have children, and this is called a piano recital. Okay? I'll see you've been to one. There you go. Uh, If you haven't been to one, you may have a vision of what it's like after experiencing it. It reminds me of a book I read by a guy named Dante called Inferno. In Inferno, there's different rings of hell. I would say piano recital is about seven because it's not like the deepest you can go, but it's not like limbo either. You know, it's kind of in the middle somewhere. Uh, so I sat with this girl's parents, and we watched like 15 kids go up and do their piano recital. And then my friend's daughter goes up. Her name is Brianna. Uh, she goes to play this piece. Now, none of the kids have music in front of them because they're all supposed to memorize their music. They get up there, and they hammer out their thing, and they're done. Everybody claps, and it's wonderful. Well, Bri gets about a minute into her piece, and she forgets what she's doing. And when you do that, everybody in the crowd goes, ooh, oh, ooh, oh. And what they're thinking is, thank God that's not my kid. That's what they're all thinking, right? I, I don't got to repair this when we go home. Whew, you know, that, that kind of thing. You know, like, why didn't she prepare for that, that dumb kid? And so eventually Bree starts to play again, but she doesn't start where she stops. She starts at the beginning, hopefully thinking she's going to remember where she left off. She gets about to the minute point. Everybody's a little nervous, and she stops again. And at that point, everybody in the crowd goes, ooh. And so, so you know, Brianna's sitting here, right? Everybody does it, and she goes, like that, you know, like 
Like, really? So at this point, the piano teacher runs up, and she throws the music in front of Bree, and Bree finishes her piece, and everybody's like, oh, thank God, that's over. But it's not over, because the punishment continues. Because what happens after this is you have what's called the, the cookie and punch time. Right? And, and these aren't like good cookies like Element gives you in the bag. Right? These are like, these are like stale sugar cookies and this pink representation of lemonade that's more like toxic waste. It's horrible. So you walk around with this cookie and this napkin and this cup. You're supposed to tell everyone how great their kid did. Oh, they played with passion. And what do you say about Brie? She shrugs well. Wonderful. You know, I don't know. So eventually, about you know, a few minutes into this, and I look at my friend, and I, and I, and I go, give him the look that's like, we've got to get out of here. I can't lie anymore. You know? Thus says the Lord, we need to leave. You know? So... So we all go. So we all end up starting to go home. And my friend Brad, uh, he loves his daughter Brie. He really, really, really does. Uh, but Brad's also a musician, and Brad's actually a really good musician. And after it, always a little bit embarrassed. And so he shows that how he interacted at the cookie exchange, uh, how he walks to the car just a little bit faster to kind of get out of there. And Brie notices this thing. And so he's talking to me about this this later. And so that night, he goes and he's praying with Brie before you know they, they go to before she goes to bed at night. And she says to her dad, she goes, "Why do you hate me?" And he goes, I, I love you. I don't, I don't hate you. She said, if you don't hate me, then why wouldn't you look at me after the recital? And why'd you walk so fast trying to get to the car to get out of there? You know, and so, you know, Brad's talking to me about this. And he, and he says, this really is kind of like the mirror that looked at my heart in my life. And he said, you know, really what, what she says is, Dad, you're an adulterer because you're using your daughter to fill an emptiness in your own heart. So you can feel proud and say, oh, my daughter was the best one at the recital. He said, you're a murderer because you destroyed your daughter over something so trivial. Now, obviously, Bree didn't use those words, but that's where he hit my friend, you know, deep down in his heart. See, what is true of all of us is that we're just like that. We all struggle with lust. I mean, if we don't struggle with lust, then why are we so disappointed with our spouses? Why? You know, why does your heart get broken by your children not living up to your expectation? I mean, I've worked with a lot of kids over the years, and I know a lot of kids who go to college because it's important to their parents and not necessarily to them. Uh, I know a kid right now who's in a, who wants to be a welder, but he's in an engineering program because his parents expect it, not because he really wants to do it. It is lust and murder because our kids are fulfilling their parents' own core emptiness, and that is idolatry. I mean, how ridiculous is it that we look at people around us and they should be what we want them to be rather than who God has made them to be? And until we learn to understand that we ourselves are broken and faced our own lust, our own idolatry, our own anger, we will not be salt and the light in the world. We will not be living the Beatitudes. We will not be living in the kingdom of God. I mean, personally, I am convinced that all conflict on earth stems out of idolatry that turns into murder. I think that's true all the way in the Middle East, in Darfur, in the Congo, in North Korea. I think it's true in our very own Congress. I mean, how do you even begin to understand in America that pornography is a $12 billion a year industry? We live in a culture that is bound into violence because of our lusts. Now, let me tell you something else. Underneath the lust is something that was supposed to be beautiful. It was a desire for union with the God of the universe. Underneath the anger was something that was supposed to be beautiful. It's a stand against injustice. Again, you understand, lust is not just a sexual thing. The root word of the word lust is this word epithumos. Epithumos. Epi means to stand on. Thumos means passion. We were made to stand on, desire the embrace of Jesus. Our hearts were meant to take and use anger to oppose that which would destroy the glory of God, the beauty of God, because we have such a passion for it. I mean, what would it mean for you and I to actually begin to understand that our core problem is also our core calling in our lives? It's like we're in a war of desire. And the question comes down to, will, you desire, will your desires own you? 
or you use them for what they're meant to be used. And too often, our desires own us, and we become killers and whores. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Cut off your hand if it makes you sin. Gouge out your eye. He's not telling you to go home and get the hacksaw. It's a euphemism that says anger and lust is so powerful, you must chop it off when it gets its hooks in you because you will never know what it means to truly worship God as he is until the one who sits on the throne in your heart now is hacked up and is dragged away. The idol must go because the king must sit. That's what it means. And that starts with this mirror that Jesus holds up to remind us that we are all killers and whores. We are evil. And yet God is good, and God gives us his righteousness. We must recognize the intention of our own self when it comes into conflicts with Christ's intention for our lives. You and I, we cannot save ourselves as much as we try, as much as we want to. The mirror that Jesus holds up is meant to break us and humble us so we understand that Jesus is the way that we are saved. And sometimes people think, oh, that just sounds so horrible and such a downer. It's not. It is the only thing that ever offers us hope. Because if you've been alive for any length of time, you know we can't do this on our own. As much as we try, we fail every single time. And that is why Jesus saves us, the only way to salvation, while we surrender our lives to him. He resets our passions when we trust him. We become imitators of God. Our anger doesn't magically disappear, but it starts to be used rightly. It starts when we understand in all the various ways we have been vengeful and we have been wrathful and we have been arrogant killers. I'll tell you, the night before I wrote this message, my wife will probably remember this too, we're laying in bed and she leans, we're talking about something, she leans over, I don't know what she meant to do, maybe put her hand on my face or something, which still would have been a little awkward, but you know, but she poked me in the eye. <laughs> Boom. And I'm like, oh, you poked me in the eye. And I'm like so mad. I'm like, oh, my eye. She's like talking to me. And you know, she... She's like, get over it, you baby. You know? But I'm like, oh, my eye. Oh, and I'm like so mad. And, and I realized, why was I mad? Because my pride was hurt. I felt stupid. Why did I feel stupid? Because someone poked me in the eye. My eyes watered. I'm like, ah. And it's so, we do this all the time with people. We think of offended us and hurt us. And we hold that thing. Oh, how dare they do that? She didn't mean to do it. It only took me eight months to say this. No, no, no. <laughs> no she didn't mean to do it. But you hold that. We do that with friends and our spouses all the time, with kids. Oh, how do you? They didn't mean to do it. But we hold this accident there like it's, we become murderers when we do that. I mean, on the other side, you also don't have to go to Amsterdam or downtown New York City to be a whore. We simply look at our own hearts and all the things we lust at, that is things other than what Jesus calls us to, all the things that overtake our commitment to who he calls us to be. But what Jesus says, in that moment, that's when you understand truly that we are poor in spirit. That we are poor in spirit. And ours is the kingdom of God. We realize we are and were a mess. That's when we understand the great grace that God has given to us. Where he pulls us out of our own pit. I mean, that is what we mean by the cliche when we say that Jesus saves. That's what we mean. It's not a cute little bumper sticker. It's this idea that, you know what, when we say what is true about us, we are all killers and whores. And yet Jesus still saved us. Because what does the God of the universe do with killers and whores? He invites them to dinner. He dances with them. He redeems them. He restores them. And if we begin to understand this in our lives, we understand the ultimate display of grace that God has given to us, and our lives, the understanding of what we do, is all starts to be shown in the gratitude of how we begin to live our lives. Everything begins to become different because we realize the state that we were in and how God saved us, what God did to redeem us. Because, guys, I will tell you, honestly, 
We are all a people who are killers and whores deep in our hearts. We get so offended when people hurt us, and we want to hold on to that. They must apologize to me. How dare they do this to me? Whether it's someone just cutting you off in traffic, not knowing how to use the stupid roundabout, you know, thinking of all the ways that someone hits you, you're gonna, you're, how you're going to get out of it and make them really pay. Sorry, that was me last week. Someone was hitting me in a roundabout, and I'm like, Raka! You here last week, right? No, okay. All the things that we let overtake us from living the way that God calls us to live, it's all lust. We're, we just become adulterers and murderers. And the beauty of it is that Jesus holds that up, but he does that after talking about blessing, after talking about the Beatitudes, after talking about you are salt and light. People are watching us. After bringing us to the place where you understand a little bit more of what true worship was supposed to be, that's when he brings out the mirror and says, and this is what's going to hold you away from that. Not understanding the depth of your own depravity and your own sin that he has pulled you out of and saved you from. That's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. How he continues to walk us into the places we need to do to see who he is and who we are in the midst of it. So we become a humble people. A people who cannot be self-righteous because the righteousness we have only comes from him. So we become a people of grace who live in goodness. But we also become this people who get to speak truth. Because the truth has been exposed to us. And it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow to say, yeah, you know what? In my life, I have been a killer and a whore. It's hard to swallow. But once we actually swallow that, we then no longer look at everybody else like they're a moron. Because we realize what we have been saved from. And it makes us into a people who live lives of humbleness and grace. I mean, this is one of the reasons we bring you to communion every week. Because it's a place to remember what Jesus has done for us. That's why you break that cracker like his body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. Or if you're at that table, it's just grape juice and grape juice because you ran out of wine. But, you know, it's to remind us of what Jesus has done for us to save us. You know, he died because of our sin. You know, not because we were so good, but because he was so good. He redeems us because of his own goodness. What does the God of the universe do with killers and whores? Brings them home. He redeems them. He loves them. So we don't stay in a state of shame or despair. We live in a place of hope because our God has given us great hope. Uh, the band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. If you need prayer, uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you are in a place in your life where it's like, you know what? I've never thought about it, but I am living as a killer and a whore, and I'd like somebody to pray with me. I mean, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus Christ, there's no better day than today to do that. They would love to pray with you about that. Because it's not just about understanding our state that we're in. It's about understanding what we're called to. Something so much deeper and so much greater. And something that has so much more hope than you trying to do it all by yourself. It's a place of redemption that has been given to us. Uh, There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of that worship. We don't pass a plate. And so we, we put it there so it's a response to what God has done. Uh, last week I was talking to somebody who's been here a couple times, and they said, it's really weird. A lot of churches I go to, they do all the music on the front end, and then like the guy speaks, and maybe there's one song or something. It's like, see ya, get out of here. And he goes, you guys do it the exact opposite. And I, and I said, there's a reason behind that, because we see everything we do as a response to what God has done. That's why we do a song to get us in the mood. We do some announcements. We do another song, and then I talk at you for half an hour, 45 minutes. Because we realize we want to help you to realize what God is doing in our lives and everything that comes after that, which is you know the prayer in the back, the, the giving, uh, the fellowship, the music. It's all a response to what God is doing in us. And so we want to always give you guys time to respond to that. 
Um, and so there, there is also food in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat. Um, the, the food is there to help connect with other people. I mean, maybe you are new, and this is all kind of just buzzing around your head for the first time. Well, we'd like to connect with somebody a little bit. Maybe you can go out to lunch or to dinner and, and go to a gospel community this week, or maybe even just take the questions home and talk to them amongst your family. So you can begin to go a little bit deeper into what we talked about this morning and understand you know, the depth of our own sin, but also the goodness of a God who has saved us and not left us in the depth of that sin. And so that we become a people who offer his grace and his hope and his life to everybody around us because we are his ambassadors to this world. And we will only do that by understanding our own state first, understanding what he has done by blessing us, and then living out that blessing because our God is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we understand that you are the hope of the world, that it is not us, it is not our own righteousness, it is not our own way that we see everything around us, but it is you and your call to grace and to truth. And so I ask, like you do in the Sermon on the Mount, that you'd help us to understand that we have been a blessed people. You have blessed us already. And that we would understand the state that you met us in, that we were poor in spirit, that we were killers and whores. We have been adulterers and we have been murderers. And yet, even in that state, you did not write us off. You came to redeem us. You came and brought us mercy. And now you call us to be merciful. You call us to be your children in this world. And God, quite frankly, we don't live a salt and light very often. We live as a people who are so focused on our own desires and our own needs that we commit spiritual adultery on you as the one who has saved us. And yet that guilt and that shame is not meant to overwhelm us. It's meant to help us understand more closely the goodness of you in saving us. That we're never to a point where you just write off your kids and say, I'm done. You are the God who continues to pursue and to love the loveless. So teach us to understand what that means. That we would also be those who love the loveless. Those who maybe have done some unlovely things and those who just do some things that we deem aren't lovely enough. that we would live as if you truly are the hope of the world and that everything we have comes from you. And you would change the focus of our hearts and our lives. And so we would live as children of the great and living God and no longer as the killers and horrors that we so often want to live as. Today, help us to understand your grace even better. Your calling more deeply. So that everyone that we come into contact with sees who you are by the way that you've called all of us lost people home. That you've taken us to dinner, that you've danced with us, and you adopt us into your family and call us your children. 
Have us understand that. And not just understand it, but live it out in a way that those who don't know you would see it, acknowledge it, and lift you up. Because they are so amazed by the grace that you have given your kids. We ask this in your son's good name.